The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our, our series, and this morning is a very unique set of verses. Because Paul is now directing a very focused a very focused attention to verse 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now let me just pause there for a second. Because I'm sure no one here this morning is considering themselves ambitious or conceited. Yet, Paul, in addressing these Philippians, finds it necessary to bring this to the forefront. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know, we as Christians... We're constantly looking at plans, we're looking at goals, we're looking at ways to to make our lives happy. We're looking at ways to get beyond things, to find joy. And quite frankly, we often go beyond the point where God is simply saying, stop and focus on me. Focus on others. And so he continues, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that really is the battle that we find so often. We're constantly looking for our own pleasure. And so Paul is very straightforward in his words here. Now, The concern for each person from himself or herself is so well ingrained in human nature that almost no one contests it. The policies of government as well as the conduct of millions of individuals flow from it. Our text is the Christian refutation of this principle for it says that the one who has believed in Christ first of all is to look out for someone else. Paul has been speaking to the the Christians at Philippi about proper Christian conduct. He has told them that they are citizens of heaven and that they should be unified in their aggressive proclamation of the gospel. He now applies these themes to the conduct of the individual believer. One commentator has written, quote, Paul does not, does not leave the question of the worthy life, which produces a steadfastness stand until he brings it to the rest on the worthy life as it is found in the individual. A man not of self-seeking conceitedness, but with a correct, humble estimate of himself, seeking the welfare of others, and putting them first. 
steadfastness depends on unity, and unity depends on me. Let me say that again. Steadfastness depends on unity, and unity depends on me. So the success of the gospel depends solely on each and every member here this morning. The success of Grace Fellowship Church depends wholly on each one of us here this morning. Steadfastness is a collective willingness to minister together. So this brings us then to a Christian principle. The principle that Paul is stating here is found throughout the New Testament. The unbeliever naturally puts himself first and others second and God last. And this, this is an order that he merits quite easily. But the Bible teaches that it's the other way around. That it is God first, others second, and we must be last. Listen to how the Bible words it. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens... And so fulfill the law of Christ. Now consider that verse. We saw last week that Jesus said that he had come and brought a new commandment. That you were to love one another. And then here he says that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see what Christ has brought in coming is a whole new way of looking at people. And that is everyone else first before me. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 1 Corinthians 9.22 To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, and by all means I might save some. Romans 12.10 Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You see the flow of where Paul is going here. Romans 5.1 and 2 We who are strong have an obligation to bear with with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Once again, it's not about me. We are not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You see, this is the heart of the Christian conduct. Jesus gave himself for others. And followers of Christ are to give themselves for others. Jesus said that his own would feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner, make welcome the one who is lowly. It's a complete turnaround of how we know life to be. Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers... You did it to me. Imagine being called brothers by the true king. 
But this is the relationship that Christ is cultivating in and through his people. So we come to a very unique situation. We come to a very unique place right now that really helps us to see the depth of where this is going. And it has to do with the fall of Satan. Now, I imagine that you might be tempted to dismiss all the verses we've just looked at so far as if they were only one of a very great number of things a Christian is expected to do. A great number of things that just fill our plate, uh, therefore becoming not very important. If you're doing so mentally, let me warn you, that's not the right way to go. Because in the first place, a command is not any less important just because it is one of a large number of commandments, just as telling the truth on Monday is any less important because it's supposed to be told on Friday. Second, the command to care for others are not really on equal footing with many incidental matters. Care for another person is at the heart of a right relationship with God. And all rebellion against God is inevitably linked to a corresponding disregard for others. So this is seen in the story of the fall of Lucifer when the star of the morning became Satan. The story itself is recorded in Ezekiel chapter 28. This is a difficult passage, but several things are clear here. First, Ezekiel does not speak of Satan. For although the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 10, is spoken to the earthly prince of Tyre, the second half of the chapter, verses 11 through 19, deals with a figure who has supernatural attributes and who apparently stands behind the earthly ruler as the power behind the throne. And this is where Paul warns against such principalities and powers when he warns Christians that our warfare is not against flesh and blood. So you see, the, the simplicity of obeying God is literally a battle against principalities and powers. The simplicity of obeying God and putting others first is a battle against principalities and powers. And Paul warns against this such situation in Ephesians chapter 6. So you and I are fighting a much bigger battle about saying yes or no to obeying the call to serve. In the context, the devil is called the king of Tyre, not the prince of Tyre. And the passage teaches that this figure was originally the highest of all created beings. The second thing that is clear from Ezekiel chapter 28 is that Lucifer was led, or Lucifer was to lead creation in worship of God. Now just think about that for a minute. Lucifer was created to carry the principles of God to creation. Then he was to carry the worship of creation back to God. 
The passage teaches that this figure was the original and the highest of all created beings. Critical is this importance here. Because that's the clear thing we find from Ezekiel chapter 28. That Lucifer was to lead creation to the worship of God. The passage says that the figure described here was the anointed cherub. Only kings and priests were anointed in the Old Testament period. And it says that it was Lucifer's task to handle certain trade for God. Now, we must not be misled by the use of the word trade, uh, as if it had to do with simply monetary things. Apparently, Satan passed the commandments of God down to the lower orders of creation, at the same time passing the worship of creation back to God. In this, he exercised the offices of the king of the creation and the priest before the Lord. The third key point then is that in the passage is that Lucifer mishandled the merchandise. And this is what we're quite familiar with. Lucifer wanted the praise for himself. And so he would carry the commandments of God down to creation. But instead of bringing creation back to God, he kept it for himself. This is what he was created to do. To bring, cre- to bring worship back to God. And you know, folks, you and I, in our love and devotion to God, have a responsibility to bring worship back to God. You and I have the responsibility to take the worship from our hearts and the service to others, putting others before ourselves and bringing it back to God in great worship. And so it's important for us to be very mindful of our responsibility. But getting back to Satan, he had a very special obligation. Ezekiel 28 verse 15 says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. So here's this person created absolutely blameless. And then, till the unrighteousness was found in you, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with the violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was poured because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom from the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to to feast their eyes upon you. What a terrible story. What a terrible end that is brought here. Isaiah adds a similar passage and one we're probably more familiar with in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set uh, on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. 
I will make myself like the Most High. I, 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 I. How often do you and I find ourselves putting our desires first? Our plans first at the expense of what God has called us to do. But I want you to notice something also very significant here. The last phrase of verse 14, I will make myself like the Most High. Now why the phrase like the Most High? Barnhouse addresses this because he was once asked this very question. Why would Satan choose the name Most High? Why did he not aspire to be like God in those names of Savior, Redeemer, Comforter? Well, the answer is quite simple. He had no interest in redeeming anything. He had no interest in helping anything. His only interest was control. So here is the key to the pride of Satan. God is revealed as El Elyon, the Most High God, and in the character, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. This is what Lucifer wanted to be. His rebellion was not a request for God to move over so he could move in. It was a thrust at God himself. It was an attempt to put God out so that Satan might take his place and be the possessor of heaven and earth. But then we come to this amazing, amazing alternative. Jesus Christ, the great alternative. What a context we have when we look at Jesus Christ. Instead of exalting himself, Jesus implies himself of all, or, or he emptied himself of all outward aspects of his glory and became man for our salvation. We read in a few later, verses later in Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 7 through 8, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found. In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. Can you describe self-denial any better? Who here would lay everything down for your friend? Who here would lay your life down for your friend? Then, too, his coming meant death on a cross, the symbol of the most suffering known in Christ's day. Yet he endured them, denying himself for our sakes. Did Jesus relish these things? Of course not. No more than you and I ever would. But this now brings us spiritual warfare. It should be evident from this that when Paul admonished the Philippians to consider others better than yourself and to look on the interest of others, he was actually carrying them to the frontier 
of that great war being waged between the powers of light and darkness. You see, this isn't just a conflict between you and a friend. His or her possessions are yours. Who's right or who's wrong? You are battling light and darkness. It's even more than that. It's a battle between God and Lucifer being waged in your life as you treat others. Even your closest friends. So, how do we live for others? How do you and I live for others? If you are to live for others, there are at least three things that must happen. They're very critical. And if you're taking notes, you want to make sure you get these three things down. First, you must admit that in yourself, you do not care for others. And left to yourself, your choice will always be you. Say that again. You must admit that in yourself, you do not care for others. And left to yourself, your choice will always be you. Or Satan's choice rather than the choice of Jesus. Your way will always be the choice of pride. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis discusses this problem. Asking at the end how it is possible to acquire the character that will truly deny self for others, he calls it simply humility. Quote, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him from the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. He adds that it is a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. We are a proud people. And that's something we must deal with in order to allow Christ to have his way. The second step is to humble oneself before God. To humble oneself before God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble oneself before God. Humble yourself, verse 6, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he might exalt you. You see, there is a way to be lifted up but only when one surrenders everything to Christ. When we step aside and allow the Spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth and to train us and to teach us, that's when we begin to understand the filling of the Spirit. And that's when we begin to understand what God is doing in and through each one of us. So the second step is to be humble, to humble oneself before God. Maybe you will think that such a relationship is odd. You imagine that if you humble yourself before God, admitting this 
worth, you have every right to expect that others will humble you before you too. But it doesn't work that way, does it? If you will say with Peter in Luke 5, 8, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. If you can say with Peter in a clear understanding that I am a man, a sinful man, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord, to have the reality of who you are before God. And then say, with Isaiah and Isaiah 5, verse 6, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then you will have little cause for setting yourself and your own interests above anyone else. To see God as he really is, and to see yourself as you really are, that is the amazing victory that is ours when we surrender to Christ. The final step involves a daily fellowship with Christ. He's the source of our life, and we must stay close to the source if we are to realize that self-giving, a self-giving life, he advocates. Without him, we can do absolutely nothing. And isn't it amazing that in Philippians 4.13, he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. I can do all, all things. Through Christ, who strengthens me. But you must give up. You must surrender. You must say, God, I, you must increase and I must decrease. I must find you at the core of everything I am. I must see your being in all that I am and everything that I do. And so, God, I commit myself into your spirit. I commit everything to you. Take over, wash me, and be glorified in and through my life. And I'll tell you, when you find that station, Almighty God will lift you up and exalt you and bring you to the throne of grace and prepare you for a life that's already underway, a life of glory and praise to Jesus Christ. Is that your life today? Is that what you're seeking? Trust that that is now at the forefront of your existence. And Father, we thank you this morning for your grace. Lord, it's just, it goes way beyond anything we're capable of. 
that goes way beyond our understanding, our own ability. But Lord, you have promised. You've promised to come alongside and to lift us up and to fill us with your spirit. And so I pray now, Lord, that in the quietness of this moment, you would touch the hearts of each and every one of us, that we might walk circumspectly, obediently, trusting you every step of the way. And Lord, we'll give you all the glory in Christ's precious name. Amen. God bless.